Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, can you believe we're kicking off season four of our podcast? What an amazing ride this has been. Well, I'm welcoming you back and everyone uh, who's been a listener or is a new listener because we're raring to go with more hidden history about systemic racism in America, history that most listeners didn't get in school. So, Court, before we get into it, what have you been up to while we were on hiatus? Well, Aunt Carol and listeners, of course, I enjoyed the holidays. I celebrated my fourth wedding anniversary, so I'm on season four of being married. And I started a few writing projects on my own, as well as reading several books, um, especially the book that we picked for the Watson Learning Community. More on that later. And um, just enjoy my time off. But I'm glad to be back in my headphones and by my microphone. Oh, I'm glad to be back in mine as well. That my time off was great too. In fact, I used some of the suggestions you made in our season three wrap up episode to find some cool gifts for friends and family while I was off. Well, besides giving out the illustrious, or should I say, notorious Rutherford B. Hayes Award, I think our gift guide is my favorite part of our year in episode. And I just saw on TikTok that the dolls that we mentioned, the HBCU dolls, um, are now in some Walmart. So that's really cool. So you can go to Walmart or Target to get those dolls. Well, Courtney, speaking of dolls, I know you're a big Disney fan, so I bet you're delighted that they've teamed up with a Black-owned company called Creative Soul Photography to reimagine the Disney princess dolls through an Afrocentric lens. Now, I've seen pictures of the dolls, and they are stunningly beautiful, and they're dressed in fabulous outfits. You know, I may have to give them to myself or a deserving niece as a gift. Wow, that's that I would I would put a doll on my shelf. They are beautiful. <laughs> okay. Well, dolls aside, even though we both use the team off that that time off to decompress from ferreting out systemic racism in America, we did spend time working on the Why Are They So Angry project as a whole. And of course, we've got some interesting eye-opening season uh, episodes planned, but we also want listeners to know there are lots of options to get more Why Are They So Angry content in addition to our podcast. That's right, Aunt Carol. Now, listeners should head over to our newly revamped webpage at www.whyarethesoangry.com to read blogs, find resource materials, access podcast episodes, and get Watsa swag. Yes, we have our own merch. So if you want to engage with us and take the course, head on over to our new website. Well, you know what? Speaking of that course, because we want it to be accessible to as many people as possible, we've lowered the price to just $50. And the four modules in that course, they feature 26 lessons and over an hour of video content that expose systemic racism in American institutions you never thought would be racist. So the course is great, but also all those other things that you talked about. With the recent efforts to ban books about race in America and the fake CRT narrative floating about, students and teachers can use that course to learn all the things some folks in our country would rather you not know. And if you want to know more, join our Why Are They So Angry private Facebook learning community where you'll be able to engage with us through posts and comments, as well as meet and network with other members of the community. 
I love our learning community. And in that private uh, Facebook learning community, it gives you access to bi-monthly live Zoom sessions where you can talk with us as well as community members. And we're taking deep dives into books and films that expose systemic racism in this country. And Courtney, all you have to do is search for Why Are They So Angry Learning Community uh, on Facebook. You answer a few questions, then you ask to join the group. And, you know, if you're a podcast listener, you really need to come on over and join the learning community. We'd love to have you there. We definitely would. And finally, if you need more of us, if you can't get us off of your brain, you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Woo, Courtney, I hope this shows our listeners we weren't just eating holiday treats and exchanging gifts during our hiatus back in December. We've spent a lot of time enhancing all of our resources for deepening our listeners' understanding about race in America. So I hope they'll take advantage of everything that we have to offer. Now, during our time off, we also spent time planning out the year for our podcast episodes and topics. And one of the topics you and I believe deserves deeper understanding is the dramatic ways that white people have exercised systemic racism against Blacks through violent expulsions, land grabs, and terrorism that rob Blacks of land, property, and businesses. Many times, these uh, these really terroristic incidents resulted in Black folks being murdered while being driven from their own homes. Well, and Carol, the obvious horrible history that comes to mind, and we did a podcast episode on this, uh, was the Tulsa Race Massacre of June 1921, when a white mob burned and destroyed more than 35 square blocks of one of the wealthiest Black communities in the United States, known as Black Wall Street. More than 800 people were admitted to hospitals, and as many as 6,000 Black residents of Tulsa were held prisoner in larger facilities. And many of them, for several days, they were in those facilities. Sadly, up to 300 Black residents are believed to have been killed during that massacre. The Greenwood area of Tulsa has never recovered from this horror. And to this day, there are debates about whether the descendants of this heinous crime deserve reparations. Right. It's still going on. It's still going on. But stunning as the Tulsa race massacre is, my dear niece, that's just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Black people have been violently expelled from at least 50 towns, cities, and counties in the United States. And, you know, most of these expulsions occurred in the 60 years following the Civil War and continued all the way up to 1954. Now, here are a few examples. In uh, March 1863 in Detroit, Michigan, after a man named William Faulkner was found guilty of sexually assaulting a white girl, a mostly white mob uh, they cra- clash with officials trying to get at Faulkner in the jail. Now, when they failed to get him, they roamed around Detroit streets. They attacked black folks. They set buildings on fire and they left nearly 200 black residents homeless. Now, in September 1912, 98% of Forsyth County, Georgia, uh, their black residents were expelled after two black men allegedly attacked two white women. So about a thousand residents were kicked out of Forsyth County, Georgia. And uh, that county it remains predominantly white even until today. Now, here's another incident. In 1954, after the Brown versus Board uh, of Education decision that called for the integration of public schools was handed down, a sawmill owner named Jack Williams threatened to burn down the homes of all of his Black employees in Sheridan, Arkansas. Talk about cutting off your what nose despite of, your what face. What kind of sense does that make? <laughs> well, but he threatened to board, burn down their houses unless they accepted a buyout offer and relocated to Malvern. So those are just a few of the incidents. But as I said before, there are over 50 documented, but who knows, there are probably more. And you know what? We we can't uh, let our, where we're from slide either. Let's not forget closer to home. Um, Aunt Carol, in September of 1923, the mayor of our hometown, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, 
ordered all blacks and Mexicans living in the city less than uh, less than seven years to leave within 24 hours. So about 2000 people who had come to our small town to make a better life or or start over were expelled. Uh, 2000 people had to leave their home. Well, that's right, Courtney, even our little hamlet has a shameless history of mass expulsion. Now, of course, race is at the bottom of these ignoble acts, Courtney, but there is more to it than just racial hatred. According to Trina Shanks, who's at the University of Michigan, the achievements of Black Americans made them vulnerable to attack. She has said, quote, if Blacks were successful and actually were visibly prosperous, that made them a target. And some of the violence might have been triggered by this economic envy. She goes on to explain that some white Americans thought, eh, how can we make sure that we reserve these economic benefits and opportunities for the white population and our children and push blacks out so there can be more for us? And of course, the tried and true accusation that a black man had sexually assaulted a white woman was usually the flame that would light those violent powder kegs. Well, you got it right, Courtney. We've talked about that before. So now that we know that expelling black people from their homes and businesses wasn't all that unusual, I think you have an almost forgotten but particularly horrific story about a town that was just about wiped off the map and its residents sent into hiding or murdered all because of greed and the color of their skin. I do, Aunt Carol, and I want to give a trigger warning because there are some descriptions of violence, violence towards children, violence towards the elderly, and a mention of sexual assault. So as much as I want everyone to listen to the story and it needs to be known, I do want to give those triggers. Now, January 1st, for many of us, is a day of rest and relaxation after spending New Year's Eve ringing out the old year and ringing in the new. Whether you were at a party, toasting champagne and sharing a midnight kiss with that special someone, worshiping at a watch night service or in bed before the ball even drops. That would be me. <laughs> New Year's Day is often spent relaxing, regrouping. Maybe you're eating some Hoppin' Johns or some greens or doing your uh, New Year's traditions, but it's all about relaxing, regrouping, and preparing for whatever new adventures the new year has in store. And if you're in my family, you're probably at my Aunt Marcia's house watching the Twilight Zone Marathon. Absolutely. I wouldn't miss it. But on January 1st, 1923, in Rosewood, Florida, the first day of the year would not bring hope or happiness to its residents as it should have. That New Year's Day would be the start of a week-long reign of domestic terror that would end with the town of Rosewood being wiped off the map and its existence almost forgotten. Now, as you know, you and our listeners know, I like to start from the beginning. I want to know where these towns and where these people come from. Now, Rosewood, Florida was settled in 1847, nine miles east of Cedar Key, Florida, near the Gulf of Mexico. So they're on the west, west, northwestern coastal side of Florida. Now, most of the residents worked in the timber industry, either in the pencil factories in Cedar Key or the saw and turpentine mills in Sumner, Florida. And remember Sumner, Florida, that's going to be important later. Now, that town was about three miles away. Now, by 1870, the town had its own train depot and post office. And the population of Rosewood peaked in 1915 at 355 people. Now, in true Florida fashion, yes, I'm looking at you, Florida, Black voters were being disenfranchised. If you remember, we talked about the Ocoee massacre and how they did it in Rosewood is that they combined Sumner and Rosewood into one voting precinct and the residents were encouraged, the Black residents were encouraged not to vote. Now... <laughs> By you, 19... put that, you put that nicely, encouraged. I, I, they they were vote. encouraged, very, 
strongly <laughs> strongly not to vote now by 1920 and that's the year of the Ekoe massacre um they combined the populations of the town of sumner and uh, rosewood peaking at 638 so let me get this let me get this straight courtney rosewood is all black and Sumner is all white. Is that yes. correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then when you add up the number of people in Rosewood and the number of people in Sumner, then that's where that 638 comes from. Exactly. But the people in Sumner were voting in who they wanted as they encouraged their Rosewood neighbors not to vote at all. I gotcha. Okay. All right. So Rosewood and Sumner. What, what's next? Now, due to Jim Crow, Racial segregation was imposed on the residents of Rosewood, but with many towns that were the victims of massacres, um, Rosewood became self-sufficient, much like Tulsa, much like Ocoee, much like a lot of the towns we covered in our massacre series, um, I think in season three. So they created their own community centers. Um, by 1920, the residents of Rosewood had three churches, a large Masonic hall, a turpentine mill of their own, and a sugarcane mill, as well as a baseball team named the Rosewood Stars. And there were also two general stores, one of which was white owned, and that's going to be important to remember as well, that general store. The town had about two dozen two-story plank homes, other small two-room homes, and several small unoccupied plank farm and storage structures. So keep in mind, these people weren't living in shanties. They had property. They would go and work at the mill, but they would also farm their acres of land. So they were doing well. Now, some of the families owned pianos and organs and other symbols of middle-class prosperity. Wow, Courtney, even today, owning a piano and organ is is uh, pretty uh, much a middle class accomplishment. So back then, that's amazing. Exactly. Now, the survivors of Rosewood remember it as a happy place. In 1995, uh, survivor Robbie Morton recalled, and she was 79 at the time, that when she was a child, Rosewood was a town where everyone's house was painted. There were roses everywhere you walked. It was so lovely. Now, during this time in America's history, we were in the midst of the Great Migration. Black soldiers were returning from World War I with a new sense of pride and defiance against the country that, despite having fought for it, still treated them like second-class citizens, along with the unchecked rise of the KKK and Red Summer. Now, like I mentioned before, um, our listeners will remember the Ocoee Massacre. That only happened three years before Rosewood, and Tulsa happened two years before Rosewood. And during the winter of 1922 in Florida, two events in the vicinity of Rosewood would cause racial tensions to boil even hotter than usual. A white school teacher had been killed in a nearby town on December 9th, the town of Perry, and that led to the death of three black men. And we don't know if those black men had anything to do with that teacher being killed. But what did happen is that two were hung and one black man was burned at the stake alive. Oh, oh gosh. Mm. And on New Year's Eve, the day just the day before the story takes place, a Klan rally was held in Gainesville, which means, as is often the case in these stories, every you know them, you hate them. The everyone's <laughs> well-known American domestic terrorism group was lurking around the corner, just primed for what was about to take place in Rosewood. So basically, there were a lot of issues and problems that had gone on, other issues where Black people had been murdered and lynched and so on before this massacre, right? Exactly. So the perfect storm was kind of brewing. So how did this massacre start? Well, there's an old saying that my grandma would say that would say a lie will circle the world twice before the truth even gets its shoes on. And that's what happened in the massacre of Rosewood. It began with a lie, a lie told by a 22-year-old white woman named Fanny Taylor. Now, this New Year's Day, it was oddly cold and overcast in Florida. 
Now, Sarah Carrier and her granddaughter, Philomena Goins, both residents of Rosewood, took a walk over to Fannie Taylor's home in Sumner, where Sarah worked as a laundress for Fannie. So she did do her laundry. She didn't even give her New Year's Day off. Mm. <laughs> no, but hey, anyway. Well, at one point, Sarah and Philomena witnessed a white man that they had never seen before run out of the Taylor home. But they went about doing their work as normal. Now, an hour or so later, a visibly shaking Fanny Taylor emerged from her home. She was screaming and crying, and she soon began to tell her white neighbors that a black man that she did not know entered her home and beat her up. Now, Taylor's initial report only stated that her assailant beat her about the face. He did not sexually assault her. But rumors circulated and it was widely believed because that was always the going reason to start these issues um, by whites and summers that she was raped, robbed and beaten. Oh, OK. So the story has been embellished, but go oh, ahead. yeah, it's the ball is rolled. The pieces are set and the board is moving. Now, the charge of rape of a white woman by a black man was inflammatory. It was instant death in the South. That parade that I mentioned before over in Gainesville, uh, that rally of over 100 hooded gay uh, hooded Klansmen. Their whole theme of that march under a burning cross was first and always protect womanhood and we know the women that they were wanting to protect mm, mm. so I mean, and you know this is a, a familiar trope how do you argue with uh the most uh, against you know damning people who commit the most heinous crimes so yeah they picked a really bad crime rape uh sexual assault uh beating a woman and so on so yeah I, and I like in it. our ida b wells episode where she wrote her books and uh, about lynchings this was this always the specter this phantom rapist this phantom black man that fed into stereotypes about black men so fanny taylor whether or not she knew it she was the catalyst for what was going to happen next now, Sarah and Philomena quickly left Sumner after the news began to spread about Fannie Taylor's attack. They wanted to get back to town to let their folks and the town residents know what was going on over in Sumner. It was pretty well known tea and gossip in the town that Fannie Taylor had a white lover. She was cheating on her husband. And some of the Rosewood residents, including Sarah's grandson, Arnett, he had claimed to see the man before leaving her house. But the people in town knew it didn't matter if she had a, a lover, she was cheating on her man. Um, if she claimed that a black man attacked her, trouble was sure to follow. No, yeah, they knew the they knew the score. This is how this rolls out. Now, once Fannie reported her attack to Levi County Sheriff Robert Walker, he quickly, and I never understand why this happens, but he quickly gathered citizens and just began to deputize randos in the town to help him look for this phantom guy. And it's, it, it happened in Tulsa. It happened in Ocoee. It happens all the time. Well, now, that's that's all part of that uh, Second Amendment. He knew these folks probably had guns. So anyway, so he's deputized a, a party of citizens. He has deputized a party of citizens. And at first, Sheriff Walker assumed that the assailant was Je uh, Jesse Hunter. He had gotten information from the nearby chain gang that Jesse Hunter had escaped. He was a black convict who had escaped the chain gang. So him with his new team of green deputies uh, organized with some dogs that were loaned to them by the Department of Corrections to hunt down the missing convict. Well, and here's the logic or the lack of if I were an escapee from the chain gang, it's hardly um, going to be on my mind to stop and rape somebody. I'm going to try to get out of town. Yes, I'm going to go into a town full of white people, find a random lady's house. And I'm trying to get free. But yeah. that was that was the sheriff's logic. <laughs> okay. Now, at the same time, Fannie Taylor's husband, James Taylor, and he was being cheated on, but James Taylor. Not the famous the, singer, James Taylor. <laughs> no, not sweet baby James, not him. This James okay. Taylor. Is I want not that sweet. clear. 
<laughs> this man is not sweet at all. He was the foreman at the local mill. Now, he escalated the situation by creating his own angry mob to hunt down the culprit. At this time, he didn't know about Jesse Hunter, so I don't know who they were looking for, but he gathered his group, and he also called in help from white residents in neighboring counties. Well, who was in neighboring counties? Who had spent all New Year's Eve kicking up their heels? The Klan. So, of course, they lended a, a hooded hand to come and help look for this assailant okay so they've got it they're on a mission so we've got two white mobs prowling the area Uh, at least the sheriff has someone in mind james taylor's group just is looking for any black man that they could assume now eventually both groups uh, came to the realization they're probably going to help him in rosewood because he's black so they're heading towards rosewood now as the angry mob searched the dogs caught the scent Uh, caught a scent that led them to Aaron Carrier's home, who was the son of Sarah Carrier, who saw the white man leave Fanny Taylor's house. So over a hundred men showed up at the Carrier home. Now, now, now if I have this right, that would make sense because the, um, the Carrier women had been at at the Taylor home, right? So exactly. This, okay, I got it. Okay, go now. They they got the scent of from the carrier home, so they're going over there. But they're thinking that it's Aaron Carrier uh. who they're looking for. Now, according to testimony from survivor Many Lee Lang, who is Sarah Carrier's great niece, she was there. She recalls. Uh, and this is her quote, Sarah came on the porch, weeping and yelling, don't lynch my child. As the men grabbed Aaron and tied him uh, to the back of the truck, he had been recovering from an unknown illness at his mother's house. But these men grabbed him, tied a rope around his neck, hooked him to the back of a car and were dragging him in front of his mother and her great grandniece, which would be Mm -hmm. one of his cousins, off to parts unknown now it just so happened that that mob ran into the sheriff's group of deputies um and the sheriff demanded that aaron be let go because it's like this is not even the guy that we're looking for what are you doing and they there was a little bit of a kerfuffle but the law won out and the sheriff got Aaron Carrier sent him to another county they still put him in jail but he was in um protective custody because even though they know he didn't do anything to fanny taylor they still think he had something to do with jesse hunter now this was the guy okay aaron is on his sick bed and the crowd breaks in and drags him off from his sick bed but the sheriff thinks that this guy has helped jesse hunter escape Yes. Now, James Taylor's crowd thinks that Aaron Carrier actually committed out the crime. The okay. sheriff is like, no, 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 no. He's guilty, but he's not guilty of that. So hand him. OK, up. he's guilty of something. <laughs> okay. All righty. We, again, we laugh because not because the situation is funny, but because this is preposterous. It's absolutely insane. But go ahead. Go ahead. Now, an- violence is always insane, but go ahead, Court. Now, another man who was not so lucky was local blacksmith, w- mill worker, and uh, lumberjack, Sam Carter. Now, mm. the Taylor mob, the James Taylor mob, um, tortured Carter. They found him going down the road collecting turpentine sap, and they grabbed him. They tortured him to make him admit that he helped the convict who attacked Fanny. Now, after they tortured him, they forced him into the swamps to show them where they left this convict. As the group entered the swamps, the dogs lost the scent because he had never helped the convict. Now, feeling that they had been tricked, uh, one of the drunken members of the mob shot Sam Carter in the face. Oh, Lord. They mutilated his body and Mm. hung him from a tree as a warning to black men in the area um, at, to warn them to this is what would happen to you if you ha- help this unknown black assailant. Mm, my goodness, my goodness, what inhumanity! But all right, what else happens? This is the, obviously this is not the end of the story. Oh no, not by a long shot. Now Sarah Carrier, her other son Sylvester, who everyone called Man, also encountered the Taylor mob. 
Now, Sylvester was a different breed. He was a music teacher, a fur trapper, a hunter, and it was well known that he was also a crack shot. And another thing was he was not afraid of white men in the least, in especially the ones from Sumner. And the white men in Sumner hated Sylvester and feared him for that reason. Now, we don't know what happened in between the mob and Sylvester, but he was able to get away from them. But he knew the people in Rosewood were not safe. Sylvester headed back to his mother Sarah's home where he gathered residents of the town, especially women and children, and informed that there would be safety in numbers. But as the stormy weather rolled in that evening, none of them knew what was actually headed their way. Oh, Courtney, you have left us with quite a cliffhanger. So let's take a break and catch our breath. And when we come back, we'll see what Sylvester does in the face of these overwhelming odds. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. Okay, Courtney, we are back, and I am anxious to hear what happened to Sylvester Carrier and the town of Rosewood, that booming, burgeoning, successful town of Rosewood. What happened? Well, when we left off, Sylvester Carrier had escaped the James Taylor mob who was had just killed a man and mutilated and hung him in a tree as a warning. He had gathered the rest of his family and residents of Rosewood in their home in a response to this mob violence stirred up by Fannie Taylor accusing an unknown Black man of attacking her in her home in the all-white town of Sumner. Now, the sheriff and his band of new deputies, they were convinced that the assailant was Jesse Hunter, a suspected chain gang convict. Well, like I said, the James Taylor gang of angry whites, they were just looking for any black man um, that they could find. They already killed Sam Carter and they almost killed Aaron Carrier. So here we are in the eye of the hurricane. If you've ever been in a storm, the eye is that weird silent part where nothing is happening but you know the other side of the storm will soon be set upon you. For two days, January 2nd and 3rd, no violence took place. And a lot of people contributed to the inclement weather of the day, the unnatural cold and rainy uh, sleet that that side of Florida was getting. Now, the people of Rosewood waited and nothing happened. But on the evening of January 4th, 1923, a mob of white men descended on the carrier home. Now, in that home, by that time, there were 15 to 25 people, like I said, mostly women and children. And no one really knew why the carriers were targeted. A lot of people did not like that they were a prominent family. A lot of people didn't like Sylvester. Um, So we don't really know the reasons. I mean, we can guess, but we really don't know why their home was targeted. Now, leading the charge was a former deputy who had been fired by the sheriff for spending too much time in the Rosewood juke joint and not actually upholding the law. Okay, so he has he has connections to Rosewood, but not, uh, you know, kind of unsavory ones. Exactly. And another uh, was a Rosewood lumberman who worked in the mill uh, by the name of C.P. Wilkerson that people called Boots because he liked to get in the fights and then kick people. Mm. Vicious. <laughs> now, the white crowd demanded that the people huddled inside. Remember, these are children and women come out, but they refused. Now, this is when Sylvester, Sarah's son, stepped up and he was armed for protection and he was protecting the people inside. And there were other men in there as well. Now, the ex-deputy climbed on the porch where a, where Miss Sarah's small dog attacked him because the dog was even trying to protect the house. But evidence says the shots were fired and the ex-deputy shot the dog and then shot in the window, striking Sarah Carrier in the head, 
killing her instantly. Oh, what an awful incident. There's more. There is more. A nine-year-old boy looking out the window who was probably nervous about what was going on was shot in the eye. Mm. Nine-year-old boy. Anyway, all right, there's more. And soon the gunfight began between Sylvester Carrier and the mob. Now, Minnie, Minnie Lee, who was an eyewitness and she was nine years old at the time, um, explain what happened when she saw what was going down, uh, going down downstairs. Um, and she was there during the Aaron, Aaron Carrier event when he was drug off. Now, she recalled the harrowing nights of the ambush at her aunt's home. After hearing the commotion downstairs, Minnie Lee went down to find her grandmother because her grandmother was down there and her aunt Sarah was already dead. She was swiftly thrown into the firewood closet by her cousin Sylvester, who was using the door as cover, and he was watching the men on the porch. Soon, C.P. Polly Wilkerson, uh, who was Boots, and Henry Andrews, who was the deputy, kicked in the door. And here's Minnie's quote. He got behind me. He got behind me in the wood bin, and he put his gun on my shoulder. And then them crackers were still shooting and going on. But he put his gun on my shoulder and told me to lean this way and that. When Polly Wilkerson kicked in the door, he kicked it down and Cousin Sly let him have it. Now, at least four more white men were wounded and one possibly fatally at the hands of Sylvester Carrier, who at that time during the gunfight instructed many and the other children to continue hiding upstairs until they could hear the coast was clear and to make a run for it for the swamp. Now, despite the carrier home not fully being taken over by the mob, both Sarah and Sylvester were killed. Well, in a gunfight like that, I mean, obviously they were outnumbered, so I'm not surprised. The remaining children did follow Sylvester's instructions, and they were spirited out into the back door, into the woods, and into the cold swamp. The older children led the younger ones across the dirt road, and they hid in the brush until they had all gathered away from Rosewood. Now, the mob left early in the morning after exhausting its ammunition and African-American residents of Rosewood began uh, fleeing their homes and hiding, like I said, in the cold swamp or in a handful of with a handful of uh, sympathetic white families. Now, don't think that the story of Rosewood was not being covered all over the country. The newspapers of the day were following it heavily, despite future attempts of trying to hide the story. There was news of the armed standoff at the Carrier House that attracted white men from all over the state. This has nothing to do with y'all, but it attracted white men from all over the state to descend on this little town. Reports were carried in the St. Petersburg Independent, the Florida Union Times, and the Miami Herald. In versions um, of competing fact and overstatement, it was listed that 20 Black people and four white people were dead, and and they tried to characterize this as some sort of race war. Now, national newspapers put the incident on the front page. The Washington Post and the St. Louis Dispatch described a band of heavily armed Negroes and a Negro desperado being involved. Well, hold on a second. So it was just Sylvester in that house shooting at all these deputies and mob and so on. But he, but the, these were heavily armed Negroes as the newspapers described it. And a lone Negro desperado. Okay. All righty. Now, they most of the information was coming from discreet messages from Sheriff Walker himself, and he was just trying to get the word out to get more help. But it was Sheriff Walker trying to spill tea, mob rumors and other embellishment to part time reporters who wired stories to the Associated Press that turned this into something I mean, it was horrible, but they were trying to flip it into some armed Negro riot. And that was not the case. Now, details of the armed standoff were particularly explosive, according to historian Thomas Dye. The idea of Blacks and Rosewood taking up arms against whites was unthinkable in the Deep South. So that's why these people in neighboring counties thought it was like a a call to arms and the banners of Gondor were lit. You know, they had to come to these people's aid. And that was not the case. 
So basically, no. Sumner was being defended by these people from all over the country, all over the state coming because Black folks had risen up and were, you know, shooting folks and killing folks. Exactly. Hmm. Now, Black newspapers covered the events from a different angle. The Afro-American in Baltimore highlighted the acts of African-American heroism against the onslaught of savages. Another newspaper reported two Negro women were attacked and raped between Rosewood and Sumner. And after the sexual lust of the brutal mobists were satisfied, the women were strangled to death. Okay, so from both uh, aspects of reporting, both the white reporting and the black reporting, things were not reported correctly at all on both sides and we choose we want to be fair on this podcast. We this is not what happened on either side. Mm-hmm. But there was trouble in Rosewood and the people needed help. Now, Florida Governor Carrie Hardy uh, monitored the situation while on a hunting trip, much in Florida governor fashion, not being aware and not being there. Um, <laughs> I'm out hunting. <laughs> now, after he was assured by Sheriff Walker via telegram, there would be no more violence. Well, I and guess I just- not. The people that they were trying to capture or whatever they were killed or hiding in the swamps. Now, and please don't think that the governor really cared about what was happening in Rosewood. Around this time, Florida was trying to become, you know, everyone's favorite vacation destination. So he was more worried that news of a race riot would stop white people from the north coming to Florida. Follow the money. Now, the newspapers were reporting that the residents of Rosewood were still fighting for their lives only hours after the sheriff sent the telegram to the governor. Now, more whites were organized and they made their way to Rosewood, people who did not even live there. By January 6th, over 200 white men had joined the mob destroying Rosewood. The mob began burning homes and other structures that included both the black and white churches. Children at the at the time, these eyewitnesses recall hearing church bells and laughter as the men burned down their church and they cuddled in they huddled in the cold swamp. A 50 year old widow by the name of Lexi Gordon, who had sent her children into the swamp to hide because she was suffering from typhoid fever. She attempted to escape her burning home only to be shot in the face and killed. Mingo Williams, who was 30 miles away from all of this, was shot as a carload of whites drove by. They asked for his name. He didn't give it in a satisfactory way. And they killed him. Mm. His offense being black and being visible to whites. James Carrier, Sylvester's brother and Sarah's son, who had previously suffered a stroke and was partially paralyzed, he left the left the swamps and returned to Rosewood. Now he asked uh, a gentleman by the name of W.H. Pillsbury, the white uh, turpentine mill supervisor for protection. Uh, Pillsbury locked him in his house, but the mob found Carrier and he escaped again. Once they found him, they tortured him and they made him dig his own grave after he had to dig the graves for Sylvester and Sarah. And then they shot him into his own grave. Talk about savage, violent, horrible. Now, I do want to shine a light on people who did try to help the residents of Rosewood. And in my mind, they didn't do enough, but I I am going to shine a light. W.H. Pillsbury, who I mentioned before, desperately tried to keep Black workers in the mill in Sumner. Why would I want to stay in Sumner? I don't know, Mr. Pillsbury, but okay. And he worked with his assistant, a man by the name of Johnson, to dissuade white workers from joining the extra violence. H. W. Pillsbury's wife secretly smuggled people out of Rosewood and several men uh, declined to join the mobs, including the town barber who refused to lend his gun to anyone. He said, I will not uh, wet my hands with blood. Somebody with morals. Now, some women, uh, black women and children escaped thanks to John and William Bryce, two wealthy brothers who owned a train. Aware of the violence in Rosewood and familiar with the population, the brothers drove their train to the area and invited escapees on to escape. Now, they refused to take any black men afraid of being attacked by the white mob. So the yeah, black well, men they, had knew, to- yeah, they knew what their neighbors were capable of. So and- I understand it. 
Now, on January 7th, the mob had completely destroyed the town of Rosewood, all except the general store owned by John Wright, who was a white man. Now, in February of 1923, a special grand jury and a special prosecutor were appointed by the governor to investigate the violence. Now, the jury heard testimony of nearly 30 witnesses, mostly white, over several days, but claimed they could not find enough evidence for prosecution. Okay, so people are dead. Black people are dead. A town is burned down. Every store, everything in the town except the store owned by the white guy. And there's not enough evidence. Okay. You got it. All right. Now, uh, John Wright, the general store owner, tried to encourage the black residents of Rosewood to return, but they would not, fearful that the horrific bloodshed would reoccur. And soon the history of Rosewood faded away with the survivors only talking about it amongst themselves or trying to forget what happened at all and some going as far as punishing their own children when they would bring up the subject so these people were suffering from severe severe ptsd now it wasn't until 1982 which was the year i was born only 40 years ago 40 will be 41 this year but 40 years ago that Rosewood's name will begin to be heard outside of the hushed conversations of the children of Rosewood, who at that time were senior citizens. That's when Gary Moore, a journalist for the St. Petersburg Times, resurrected the history of Rosewood through a series of articles that gained national attention. Now, the living survivors of the massacre at that point were in their 80s and some were in their 90s and 70s, Um, but they did eventually come forward. And there was a lot of drama involved in that with them coming forward. But they were led by a descendant of Philomena Goines. And Philomena was the little girl who was with Sarah the day that Fanny started all of this. And they demanded restitution from Florida. Now, their action led to the passing of a bill awarding them $2 million and created an educational fund for the descendants of Rosewood. The bill also called for an investigation into the matter to clarify events. Um, And I encourage our listeners to do more research on the aftermath of Rosewood because it includes land theft from former residents, the fight for recognition, the drama with Arnett Goins, and it's a deep dive that I recommend our um, listeners to take. Now, how I became familiar with Rosewood was through John Singleton's 1997 film, Rosewood, with John Voight, um, Esther Rolls, Don Cheadle, and Ving Rames. And Ving Rames plays a World War II vet- veteran. That story is very dramatized, it is not historically accurate. It's a dramatization. However, a lot of that Negro desperado, a lot of Black papers talked about this phantom World War I vet who helped the children of Rosewood. That is what the movie is based on. And no one can corroborate that he really existed. He became an urban legend. But this story is worth talking about. And Carol, it was a rough one, but I'm glad we were able to cover it. I'm glad too, Courtney. And it's pretty much left me speechless. Um, You know, we read about and hear about Tulsa. You know, that's made uh, a lot of coverage in the last few years, but we need to remember the Rosewoods of this country and really understand that as shocking as the story is, as we said before, the instances of entire towns being wiped out by white mob violence is not unusual. And in many ways, today, we still have situations where Black people are losing their land. So in Carol, if violence and threats aren't being used to confiscate land, how are Black people being expelled from their properties? Well, Courtney, over time, violence like Tulsa and Rosewood, Okoe, and other situations that we've been talking about, that's been replaced by other insidious and systemically racist practices. Uh, So people aren't necessarily being burned out of their homes. They're not necessarily being run into the swamps. But there are other ways that Blacks have been denied ownership and uh, legitimate opportunities to, to have land. For example, 
Remember our episode on sundown towns, uh, where those towns where you white only white people could be in until the sun, uh, uh, or black people could only be in until the sun went down. Uh, redlining city neighborhoods—that's another practice where uh, the, it prevented black people from living in white areas or owning property in white areas. Uh, over time, rural black towns like. Rosewood, they once numbered in the hundreds, but they have almost disappeared from the American landscape. These black towns where uh, folks were thriving and living and minding their own business. Um, so basically, we all know that property is wealth. So white America has directly or implicitly supported the unfair seizure or transfer of this wealth from black hands for centuries, either through violence or legal means that in my mind are illegal. And uh, we've seen that, uh, you know, property wealth that comes with property going by the way for black folks. And we've talked about it before and I've seen it several times where people talk about, oh, granddad got this farm back in such and such and such. But if a lot of people, if a lot of white people would dig a little deeper, granddad didn't get that farm through hard work and ingenuity. A lot of times black families were run out, redlined out, uh, burned out, lynched out. And then your family, even though you had nothing to do with that, were able to buy cheap land and build wealth on the blood-soaked land of those families. You've described it accurately. You have described it very accurately. Now, another method for seizing Black property that on the surface doesn't seem so bad is gentrification. I mean, who wouldn't want their town to be brought back to life and look better, have blight removed, all that great stuff, new stores, a new Target, all that. But as our listeners have learned and we have learned, it's not always the case that it's a good idea to do gentrification. Yes, yes, Courtney, you're right. Though the name sounds benign and perhaps a practice might appear to be helpful for restoring neighborhoods, it's actually damaging. It could be a very damaging practice. Uh, now, gentrification is defined as a process whereby the character of a poor urban area, and when we say urban, that's usually code for black, uh, is changed by wealthier people moving in, improving housing, and attracting new businesses uh, that then in turn displace current inhabitants in the process. Now, of course, the people that are moving in usually are white, or at least they're people that have enough money to be part of this gentrification process. So it could be Black people too, but overwhelmingly, it's usually whites. Now, there's an upside to gentrification. For example, like you said, more shops, more restaurants, improved uh, streets, you could get betty, uh, better city services, all of which are often not found in poor Black communities. And so gentrification brings with it some pluses, but there's also a downside. There's a loss of history and there's a loss of wealth. Displaced residents aren't around to pass their history down to newer residents, so it's going to be forgotten. And a lot of these are very historic neighborhoods that are wiped out. And then, of course, owning property is wealth. Now, losing the history and character of a neighborhood is tragic, but the larger problem is all what I just said. It's rarely discussed, but it's a way to make huge transfers of wealth from Blacks to others. And these Blacks already are lagging behind in terms of household income and in terms of uh, uh, net worth. Now, the same problem of gentrification is happening all over the United States. For example, Charlotte's Biddleville, which was founded in 1871 as a neighborhood for the historically Black Johnson C. Smith University faculty and staff, that area is undergoing gentrification. In 2000, the neighborhood was 96% Black. By 2016, whites made up a quarter of the residents, and one can guess even more today. Now, according to Zillow, some homes there are selling as for as high as a million dollars. A million dollars. This this wow. is where, yeah, this is where <laughs> Black people lived in these very, you know, 
modest homes and now uh, you can you can't get into the neighborhood. Now, much of the same is happening in Houston. There's a recent article in the Houstonian magazine that calls Fourth Ward gentrification, quote, a vicious and unruly force that's reshaping Houston's social fabric. Now, remember, Courtney, when housing prices go up, so do the taxes. And when taxes go up, that forces long-term residents to flee their homes, much like those who were violently forced out of Rosewood and other communities. So if you can't pay your taxes, you got to go. And that's that. And you see it in places like Brooklyn, Harlem, the Bronx. Uh, my husband grew up or spent summers in Harlem with one of his friends. And every time we stopped to visit, He's like, this is not the, this is different. This is different. I even see it in our small town. As much as I love the, the, our small town and I'm happy that new things are coming because I know the tentacles of systemic racism and because I know about land theft and because we know about these, uh, these new wave expulsion attempts, I can see the seedy underbelly uh, under the pretty, pretty frosting of the, the gentrification cupcake. But Ann Carol, I've heard there's another dishonest way longtime residents in Black neighborhoods are losing their homes. It's called deed theft. Yes, 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 Courtney. As usual, you have done your homework. Deed theft is called by a variety of names. Deed fraud, home title fraud, title theft, and more. But no matter what it's called, it really boils down to plain old house stealing based on the illegal transfer and recording of someone's real estate title without the rightful owner's knowledge or consent. Now, according to an article in Sisters from ARP, deed theft is particularly prevalent in neighborhoods where gentrification is happening. In Houston, for example, in 2022, Officials prosecuted and convicted two men in separate high-profile cases. A 54-year-old man was sentenced to 40 years in prison for selling property he didn't own to unsuspecting buyers. That was one of the cases. Then another man, they considered him a repeat offender, was slapped with a 10-year sentence for a real estate scam that preyed upon older adults. Now, here's how it works. Sometimes predators illegally take over and get cash loans for properties that are vacant and, in some cases, places where someone has died. In other instances, deed theft occurs when a fraudster illegally rents out a property that they don't even own. The tenants are duped into paying rent or thinking they're living under a rent-to-own lease, but the scam artist is really just collecting money, all the while the unsuspecting victim has no idea about the con. Now, another type of deed theft happens when a person at risk of foreclosure is tricked into signing over their property as part of a foreclosure rescue scam. Now, no matter which of these scams is being done, more than likely the victim is a Black person. Wow. And isn't it true that deed theft sometimes is perpetrated by relatives and caregivers or someone the homeowner knows? Well, that's true, Courtney, uh, because it's all about the trust factor. People close to the homeowner figure out how to get access to the property because they aren't suspected of being dishonest. And these people, uh, they know, again, since gentrification is coming and property values are going up, that being able to get their hands on that property is going to be a plus for them. But Deed theft can also involve people you don't know. Scam artists often use what's called the affinity factor. Uh, for example, they may be the same race as their victim, and they leverage that extra trust factor to get people to sign paperwork supposedly designed to offer economic relief. So the victims are mostly Black, but with that affinity factor, the perpetrators are as well, and they're being used by the system. That is yep. terrible. It is indeed. It is indeed. Money, uh, as I say all the time, follow the money. So, in Carol, what are some of the possible solutions to these land grabs and dubious practices that cause so much community disruption? 
Well, let's start with gentrification. First, cities could freeze property taxes for all of those who are on fixed income until a sale actually occurs. That way, their taxes wouldn't skyrocket just because the value of their homes around them have gone up. And then, you know, state lawmakers should develop tougher laws to punish predatory lenders and unscrupulous landlords who are exploiting tenants. And uh, sometimes they'll quickly evict them for the smallest violation or refuse to keep their properties up to code. And the reason they do that is to force residents to move out so the properties can be sold at a huge profit. So, uh, you know, legislators need to take a look at that and see what these unscrupulous property owners are doing. And then finally, Local governments should have some plans to work with neighborhood block clubs and associations and other groups to really educate them and promote the importance of keeping alive the stories of historically Black neighborhoods. They could work more closely with current and incoming residents to, you know, create lines of communication and establish trust and true neighborhoods and neighborliness to overcome the us against them attitudes that often accompany gentrification. Now, as for deed theft, homeowners need to take some steps and and get some safeguards in place. First of all, buy title insurance. Secondly, keep tabs on your tax records and make sure that your name is the one on the tax records. Uh, Keep your property bills, uh, property tax bills, because if you stop getting those bills in the mail, that's a pretty good sign. They're going somewhere and not to you and maybe to a scam artist. And then if you need help, if you fall behind with your mortgage and you need help, don't rely on someone just because they claim to be from your community. Uh, Get some advice from uh, a certified HUD counselor to to help you with your, your issue. Okay, now these all seem like reasonable solutions um, to help with the bad sides of gentrification and deed theft, but I think you have something bigger in mind. I sure do, Courtney, and I'm going to say the word a lot of people don't want to hear, reparations. This is a reparation stan account, as the kids Uh, Yeah, yep, yep, (laughs) yep. Now, descendants of enslaved people who never saw a dime for their labor And Blacks who have lost land, businesses, and whole communities like Rosewood and Tulsa and so on, they're entitled to some type of economic payback for their losses. Now, this idea of reparations is not foreign to America since many, many groups have been restored at some level for their losses down through the years. Farmers, fishermen, people who've lost bank accounts or pensions, people who've had a bad reaction to a COVID vaccine, people who've had a reaction to any other vaccine, indigenous people, veterans, descendants of veterans, people who get hurt on the job, people who built nuclear bombs, people exposed to pesticides, coal miners who got black lung disease, people who lose paychecks or homes from floods, droughts, or other natural disasters, people who are impacted by even trade agreements. All of these groups have received some form of reparations from the government for harm done to them. Now that's a long list, but it's still a fraction of the many people and groups who have received compensation either from or through the government for the harms they have suffered. Courtney, even the Southern Confederate uh, uh, members of this Confederate army who fought against the United States government received reparations for the enslaved people they lost. Like the commercial says, it's my money and I need it now. That is right. <laughs> Every day, someone somewhere in America is being compensated under the concept of what is known as restorative justice, a type of justice that instead of meeting out punishment to a wrongdoer, seeks to make the victims or their families whole, or at least repair them as much as possible. And who better deserves reparations than descendants of people held in bondage and unpaid servitude for hundreds of years or those who had their property stolen from them as a result of violent expulsions like in Rosewood? And we know it works because we can look over to the West Coast, which some people call the best coast, and see Bruce's Beach. So people can be paid back. So the rumor of it could collapse an economy, look at Germany. Germany is a functioning country and they pay reparations to Holocaust survivors. So it can be done. 
No, and these are people who need it most. I can think of all the massacres that we've covered that unlike Rosewood left, people left the place they called home with nothing. Yes, Rosewood descendants were given $2 million and were working in Tulsa, but how many people just picked up and left the place they called home with nothing but fear and the criminals benefited from it? That is right, Courtney, that is right. Now, and and something else to remember as it relates to this current wave of displacement, the residents who refused to leave Black urban communities for the suburbs back in the day, you know, back in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, they deserve a fair shake and credit for helping sustain cities when downtowns and inner city communities were abandoned by businesses and even their own governments. In other words, they stayed the course. And now that it's an attractive place to come back to, they're being tossed out, priced out, and cheated out of their neighborhoods, while they should be included in the newfound economic growth and development. And remember, Courtney, reparations can take many forms other than outright monetary payments. They could be tax relief. It could be scholarships. It could be community rebuilding efforts. There are many options available. We just need to be creative and think of solutions to restore people for the harm that has been done. Well, I agree with that a thousand percent. So listeners, I hope you enjoyed our season four premiere of the Why Are They So Angry podcast. And I hope you join us not only as a listener, but on our socials that we listed at the beginning of the podcast. And you can find all those socials on our new website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.